0: If I could attribute some of the recent volatility to anything, I'd say you know while there are individual events that may have triggered it, I think the the main reason for this kind of thing happening is that with each new wave, each new bull market, there are so many new investors coming into the space who are excited about it but don't know a lot about it as well, and they have a tendency to be kind of panicky, right? Um, those of us who've been through, say, four or five boom and bust cycles like this now, are starting to realize that the industry's not going away. And every time it comes back, it comes back a bit stronger than it was before. So, the all-time highs are higher than the previous ones and the all-time lows are higher as well. They never go back down to the same state. Um, You're never going to find Bitcoin under $1,000 again.
1: Information provided by Wall Street Penning Zoo is for educational purposes only and not intended to be financial advice. Please consult with a licensed financial advisor before making any financial decisions.
0: Crypto crash
2: so wednesday morning the entire cryptocurrency market suffered a flash crash with bitcoin down 30 percent and ethereum down 45 percent at the low of the day was it a buying opportunity or the beginning of the end for crypto hello and welcome back to a special cryptocurrency episode of the wall street petting zoo i'm christopher smith
1: and i'm robert coburn Uh, the cryptocurrency world moves fast chris as you said, Bitcoin and Ethereum dropped 30% and 45% Wednesday morning, and many altcoins, meaning cryptocurrencies other than Bitcoin and Ethereum, suffered drops of 50% or more. But by midday, they were back up, and with Ethereum rallying more than 50% off the lows, uh, the next few days were a wild roller coaster ride with intraday price swings of 35% or more. I think a few fortunes have been made and lost in the past few days. Uh, this week we'll dig into the reasons for the crash we'll also nerd out a bit on cryptocurrency technologies and make some predictions about where the market might go from here
2: there have been lots of interesting developments in the cryptocurrency world lately bitcoin has gotten a lot of negative publicity because of its environmental cost by one estimate bitcoin uses 120 terawatt hours per year that means that if bitcoin were a country It would be the 28th largest energy consumer above Norway and Argentina and the seventh largest carbon emitter and this to process just 270,000 transactions per day, which is a pretty minuscule number of transactions. For comparison, Visa processes 150 million transactions per day, which is 550 times as many transactions as the Bitcoin network is processing. To put this into perspective... The energy used by a single Bitcoin transaction could power your home for 24 days. And unfortunately, Bitcoin doesn't become more efficient over time. Quite the opposite, in fact. It's deliberately designed to become less efficient over time in order to make it harder for hackers to attack. Financial Times published a projection the other day that Bitcoin is such a gross polluter that it could single-handedly foil the Paris Agreement on Climate Change's goal to keep global warming under two degrees over the next few decades.
1: The environmental cost of Bitcoin has led even some of its biggest fans to turn against it. Until recently, Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, was a big Bitcoin booster and has been allowing customers to buy cars with Bitcoin. But a couple of weeks ago, Musk announced on Twitter that Tesla would no longer accept Bitcoin and would sell the Bitcoin it had on the books. He may he specifically cited Bitcoin's environmental cost as a reason. Although another reason may be that because of the intricacies of corporate accounting, Tesla can't book Bitcoin as profit. So Bitcoin purchases left a big hole in Tesla's balance sheet on their last earnings report. Whatever the reasons for the announcement, it caused a big price drop and a lot of anger against Elon Musk for bi- from Bitcoin investors who got burnt by the tweet.
2: As an alternative to Bitcoin, Musk has been boosting Dogecoin. Now Dogecoin was created as a joke based on a meme about a dog, and Elon Musk's boosterism of Dogecoin has been a bit of a clown show. He tweeted that he has been working with the Dogecoin developers to make improvements to the Do- to Dogecoin. And then the developers came back and said that they had never talked to Elon Musk. Uh, So a bit messy in terms of the the Twitter back and forth. But Doge is more efficient than Bitcoin. Elon Musk is correct about that because it uses a faster algorithm than Bitcoin does. However, because it uses a faster algorithm, it's also less secure against hacking than Bitcoin. And like Bitcoin, it's still what's called a proof-of-work coin, We'll get into that a little bit later when we interview our special guest today. Proof of work is less efficient than a lot of other coins that are proof of stake. And uh, these are just two different ways of making sure that transactions are secure. Most of the crypto world right now is moving toward proof of stake because it's so much more efficient. So all of that means that Dogecoin is not the best choice necessarily to solve the environmental problem with Bitcoin. Uh, It's also an odd choice for an investment, because new Dogecoins are created very rapidly. The rewards for mining Dogecoin are extremely high, uh, which means that the value of your coins is constantly being diluted by the creation of lots of new coins. And so most crypto investors seek out coins with a much more limited supply than Dogecoin has.
1: While Dogecoin has been trading like a meme, Going up on the marijuana holiday 420 and topping out at the sex number price of 69 cents. Another coin has been massively outperforming Bitcoin all year. I'm speaking of Ethereum, the second biggest crypto coin by market cap. Like Bitcoin, Ethereum is a proof of work coin that's very damaging to the environment. But unlike Bitcoin, the Ethereum developers are actively working to convert the coin to a proof of stake system. That would make it much more environmentally friendly the conversion is supposed to happen sometime this year and traders have been enthusiastically buying ethereum in anticipation ethereum is getting close to half of bitcoin's market cap and i wouldn't be surprised if to see it surpass bitcoin by the end of 2021 other proof of state coins like nano and cardano have been outperforming bitcoin as well
2: So Bitcoin had already been struggling a little bit due to bad press from Elon Musk. And then a couple weeks ago, it got some more bad press when a court ordered Tether, the company behind a cryptocurrency of the same name, Tethercoin, to disclose information about its finances. About 80% of Bitcoin purchases are made with Tethercoin. Supposedly, every Tethercoin is backed by one US dollar, So you can turn in your Tether coin and get back a dollar. But Tether is somewhat shady. It's located in a tax haven. It does not normally disclose its finances. And so uh, recently a court ordered Tether to disclose its finances. And Tether revealed that it only has enough cash to cover about 3% of the Tether coins in circulation. The rest are backed by commercial paper which are like very short term corporate bonds. They're kind of corporate IOUs. And so the problem with this is that we don't know whether that commercial paper is actually any good because Tether hasn't disclosed any details about those investments, who those corporate IOUs are from, and the creditworthiness of those companies and those uh, bonds. So if the companies that issued that commercial paper were to default, Tether might not be able to redeem all those Tether coins for US dollars and this created a little bit of uncertainty, I think, about Bitcoin.
1: And by the way, because Tether is an unregulated currency, they're able to do irresponsible stuff like offer insane amounts of leverage on Tether coins. If I have one Tether coin, I can borrow 125 more with just then one coin as collateral. That kind of leverage makes crypto markets extremely vulnerable to a quick collapse because if the price goes down leveraged traders will get margin calls and will be forced to sell which brings us to this week's crypto crash
2: yeah tuesday night the chinese government announced that it was banning all financial institutions in the country from doing any business in cryptocurrency now mind you this is only the latest in a long line of recent chinese government actions against crypto In 2017, the Chinese government shut down all crypto exchanges located in China. And then two years later in 2019, they banned all foreign exchanges. So this new announcement honestly doesn't change that much in terms of the crypto market in China, but it was enough to cause some selling. And then some of those highly leveraged traders got margin calls and were forced by their lenders to sell in order to cover their loans and most cryptocurrencies plummeted by about 45% by Wednesday morning. But they recovered pretty quickly by midday. Once all those leveraged traders were cleared out, there was a lot of buying, and the coins rallied up up to 50% off the lows.
1: For a minute there, it seemed like everything would be fine. But then the U.S. government threw some gas on the fire on Thursday with the announcement that the IRS is going to crack down on the use of crypto for tax evasion. The Chinese government piled on again on Friday with the announcement that they're going to crack down on Bitcoin miners and they want citizens to report any mining activity they know about. Suffice to say, the sell-off continued. Today, on Sunday, the price of Ethereum dipped below Wednesday's lows. In all, the collective market cap of cri- cryptocurrencies has been cut in half from about $2 trillion to about $1 trillion.
2: All of which raises the question of where crypto goes from here.
1: I personally have about 15% of my portfolio in crypto, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, and Dogecoin. Unlike previous investment blowups in the past, such as you know the Tulip Bulb investment bubble in the 1600s and the South Sea Company in the 1700s, I feel that like cryptocurrency is distinguishing itself to inevitably having a functional use in society.
2: So we disagree a little bit on this, Robert, because I think tulip bulbs had a functional use in society as well. We still use tulip bulbs today. They just weren't useful enough to warrant the massive prices that speculators were paying for them at the peak of that bubble in the 1600s. And I kind of feel the same about crypto. I I agree with you that it has some usefulness, but I worry that a $2 trillion market cap is just a, a huge valuation for what is essentially an anonymous and decentralized wire transfer service, kind of like a citizen's Western Union. That's just a huge valuation for that kind of technology. And I also worry a lot about the environmental impact and the way that crypto facilitates criminal activity.
1: Well, we each have our opinions, Chris, but neither of us are experts. So tonight we've brought on a special guest, Please welcome to the show Carl Youngblood, a senior blockchain specialist with Amazon Web Services, or AWS, and the founder of his own consulting company, Blockchain Consulting LLC. Welcome to the show, Carl. We're so excited to have you.
0: Hi, Robert and Chris. It's great to be with you guys. One thing I should say is that the opinions that I share here will be my own and don't necessarily reflect my employer at all. Um, and also don't constitute any form of investment advice. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, Carl, why don't you start by telling our listeners very briefly what is a cryptocurrency and what's the difference between a proof-of-work coin and a proof-of-stake coin?
0: So a cryptocurrency is basically a decentralized ledger that keeps track of balances that are stored uh, across many different accounts Each of which is controlled by the owner of the private key that corresponds with a particular account. So funds can only be transferred from one account to another if the owner of the private key signs a transaction proving that they had the authority to make that transfer. So if I can just boil this down
2: a little bit by comparing it to Visa, let's say, um, if I do a transaction through Visa, the the ledger that is recording that transaction is on Visa's servers. It's controlled by Visa. It's a centralized ledger. And what you're saying is a cryptocurrency has a decentralized ledger where it's distributed on lots of different people's computers. Is that
0: fair? Exactly. Um, And to to explain the difference between proof of work and proof of stake, proof of work was the first consensus mechanism invented by the um, creator of the first cryptocurrency, which was Bitcoin. And what it essentially does is it requires the nodes on the distributed ledger, the servers essentially that are keeping track of the ledger and propagating transactions as they are submitted to the system. Um, It requires these nodes to perform some kind of computation before they can earn the right to produce the next page in the ledger, the next block in the blockchain, if you will. So, um the nodes that can perform a very computationally intensive uh, algorithm that just requires them to search through essentially a vast cryptographic um, uh, haystack to find a needle. Um, the ones that have the most computational capacity are the ones that are more likely to find that uh, solution to this this computational problem and therefore and thereby earn the right to produce the next block and after producing the next block they're rewarded with a certain amount of tokens in this case in the in the case of bitcoin they're rewarded with bitcoin for producing that block so that's in a in brief that's what a proof of work does now proof of stake is a kind of innovation that appeared in subsequent blockchains um Most every new blockchain that comes out is using proof of stake as its consensus mechanism because it's generally agreed that it's um, more effective, uh, less susceptible to certain types of security issues than proof of work. But proof of stake just grants the right to produce new blocks in a blockchain proportionally to the amount of tokens that each um, account in the blockchain holds. So... For example, the accounts that have more uh, value, more more a higher balance, more tokens, would be called upon more frequently, proportional to the tokens that they own, to produce the next block and thereby earn the reward for that block. What's a little weird about it is that what it essentially means is that the um, accounts that already have the most funds are the ones who have the right to earn more funds than the others Um, so it sounds a little odd because it's like um, the rich are getting richer in that kind of a scenario Uh, but on the other hand the argument is that the ones who hold the most tokens are the ones who stand the most to lose if they behave in a fraudulent manner that would place the overall token value at risk right so so the idea is that they would have the most incentive to behave pro- appropriately and not do anything um, untoward or anything against the rules to try to um, to undermine the value of, of the token. And the other interesting thing about proof of stake is that because we're calling upon many different accounts to uh, produce blocks, there's an argument that can be made that the consensus mechanism is more robust and that it's distributed more... Uh, broadly across more participants in the network. So um, this is kind of how proof of state works in general, but it's one of the big things is that it doesn't have this really computationally intensive problem that you have to solve in order to produce another block, which means that it doesn't use any excess energy. It doesn't use any more energy than any other protocol out there on the internet like HTTP or any of the common internet protocols. And so it's seen as both um, better in that the risk of an attack against a proof-of-stake network is directly proportional to the value in that network whereas in bit in bitcoin and proof-of-work networks there's uh, often the cost of an attack is much lower than the potential um, value that could be extracted from the network for making that attack so there's that weakness in proof-of-work as well as well as the weakness of just consuming an insane amount of energy Uh, which many believe is not really an inherently necessary thing to do, right? And then what
2: is the, I mean, how does making people solve extremely difficult math problems, how does that secure the transactions? I mean, if I have a lot of computational power, wouldn't that still let me control the next block? How how does that fix things and and make them secure?
0: Well, so essentially what that does is that um, if you ever wanted to forge history, if you will, if you wanted to recreate a different set of uh, transactions in the past and claim that those were the actual events that occurred and that somehow someone sent you a lot more funds than you actually have, you would have to solve that computational problem for every single block that has gone by. So the more time that goes by in the network, the harder and harder it becomes to reproduce that amount of computation just in order to um, forge history, if you will. And not only that, but you have to then you know, share that alternate view of history with all the other nodes on the network and persuade them that that, that they should adopt this um, this alternate view of history. So it becomes computationally infeasible to do that for any significant amount of time. I see.
2: Um, So talk to us about uh, the usefulness of cryptocurrencies as a technology. What does crypto bring to the table that traditional currencies don't?
0: So one of the main use cases for the first cryptocurrency is just the ability to transfer value um, from one party to another across jurisdictional boundaries across borders in near real time. So um, if you were to compare that to the the best alternative nowadays, I would say probably a wire transfer is, you know, one of the fastest ways of sending money to another individual out there. Um, if we're just talking person to person transfers, right? Let's just look at that use case of the person to person wire transfer. You know, I call my bank, I send some funds, or, or I go online and I ask for a wire to be sent, and I'll get a call from my bank a few hours later confirming that that is, that I indeed wanted this to happen and that it's not some other person doing it against my will. And then if I'm lucky, it will go out the same day and by the later on in the afternoon, it will be seen on the other side. Maybe it'll take until the next day, depending on the cutoffs that they have. So if you compare a Bitcoin transfer with a wire transfer, I actually feel that the experience the user experience is better on bitcoin um and then of course newer blockchains um are a little bit better than that and they go they go a little faster than bitcoin usually um, And that's one use case right that's the person-to-person transfer of value um but another really critical use case that is a part of pretty much every th- what i call second generation blockchains which um, Ethereum is the most noteworthy of those. Um, they added the notion of that, that the transactions that are being submitted to the blockchain are not just debits and credits like Bitcoin does, but they're actually um, op codes for a computer CPU, essentially. So they are now arbitrary software commands that can be used to encode any type of lo- business logic that you want to encode. Is this what smart contracts means? Exactly. I was. I said. I was going to say this is typically called smart contracts. And what this means is that I can create more complex types of protocols or operations or uh, rules that I want to be followed autonomously um, in response to other events that occur on the blockchain without me having to do anything i can create services that other people can take advantage of and use and really the sky's the limit and it's in a similar way way to the way the internet allowed anyone to connect a computer to this global network and build services that anyone could use Um, blockchain enables anyone to build services that involve funds um, in some way or another Um, and the other cool thing that blockchains have that the internet did not, is that the infrastructure is inherently incentivized. So, um, whereas the internet didn't include a monetization layer built into the protocols themselves, blockchains do. So, in blockchains, all of the operations that are happening are being paid for already as a part of just using the blockchain. Um, whereas in on the internet other you know the companies that started to make money on the internet needed to extract value at higher layers of abstraction so they you know there was no inherent way to be paid for receiving a packet of data via HTTP for example or by, via the world wide Web so instead um, Google and Facebook and other large players decided to create things like advertisements or Um, other ways, social media programs, other ways of monetizing the infrastructure that they were building out.
2: So so when you're talking about uh, things being incentivized, are you saying that like Facebook or some company that's offering a service could directly charge for access to that service and they could get compensated via, say, Ethereum for every packet of data that I download from their service? Is that kind of what we're talking about?
0: Exactly. Yeah. So basically right now, um, like Ethereum, they are enforcing really low level kind of services and, and the cost of a transaction is relatively high. But you can imagine that other layers that any application would need to run, like storing data or like sending packets of data back and forth or storing data in a database or even performing computation on data, Um, all of those kind of services that you currently receive from a cloud provider like AWS or Google Cloud or others um, could be incentivized with crypto. So you could have protocol layers where the providers of these services are all a part of a peer-to-peer network. And you're kind of renting space from them and renting other services from them, and they're charging you. Um, and there's a comp, like a competitive marketplace where you, you know, rent these services from the various providers that are out there in this peer-to-peer network, and they're all paid and incentivized to provide these services with crypto. And if, if they're not, you know if they're functioning in a fraudulent way, they get slashed and they lose some of their funds and you know, various things that can be done to enforce the harmonious operation of a peer to peer service that no one central provider is providing.
1: Carl, there are so many cryptocurrencies out there now, and it seems it's time to start being selective about which ones to buy. uh, Because there will probably be one, uh, there'll only be a few winners and a lot of losers. Do you have any opinions on which coins might ultimately win?
0: Well, so the space is getting more sophisticated in the sense that it's now possible to hold on to your cryptocurrency, your tokens, whatever they happen to be, and um, not actually sell them but farm them out or use them as collateral for other services that are providing utility and value to people who are using them to, say, swap tokens from one to another or, or borrowing funds, um, lending funds to others. Um, these kind of basic financial services that are already available in the traditional financial space are now being developed on Ethereum and other second-generation blockchains um, and it's possible to hold on to your crypto and still be earning returns on that crypto. And so the idea of merely buying a token that's um, of that's not valued very highly right now, and then holding on to it for a long time, and then hopefully selling it at a profit, is um, no longer the only game in town in terms of investment, right? Um, so that just speaking about investing strategies. But if we're talking about the tokens themselves and what they represent and what they're trying to, the types of ecosystems that are being built based on them, I would say that um, right now what we're seeing the most proliferation of is a lot of tokens related to decentralized finance. Um, And I think that while decentralized finance is providing Actual utility—it's actually reproducing many of the same functionality that we see in the traditional financial markets, but in a more decentralized, accessible way. I would say that this is only one small slice. Like the financial services industry is 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 not the whole. It is not responsible for the anywhere near the entire GDP. Say of of the country, right? Um, there's lots of other industries out there that are doing a lot of useful. Uh, creating a lot of useful products and services. Um, in the same way, there are many other protocols that will be needed to pr- to reproduce the current functionality that is available through centralized services in a more decentralized way. And those things are still in the very early days of their maturity. So there are protocols like Filecoin for um, incentivized distributed storage. Uh, there are protocols like... Uh, some some related like Blue Zell related to uh, distributed databases. Um, there are other others related to computation, and um, all of those are barely off the ground. Like and so it's kind of hard to even predict what the winners are going to be there. Um, but then already we see a proliferation of DeFi tokens and things like that, and. Well, I think there's utility in the DeFi space, I think it's still, there's a lot of speculation going on that is in excess of probably what the overall mature size of that uh, space will be. Is, are you seeing the innovation kind
2: of concentrated in uh, one area or one coin, or is it pretty broadly distributed and, and really hard to tell sort of which coins are the leaders?
0: Well, I would say that um, by far the Ethereum ecosystem is um, where most of the innovation and activity is happening. Uh, my back of the napkin estimate of like how much bigger the ethereum ecosystem is compared to other um turing complete blockchains it would be like at least 10 times larger than all the others that i can think of um possibly even more like 100 times i I don't know the exact order of magnitude or the exact difference but but in terms of total value locked on ethereum based um DeFi projects versus other other blockchains, I would say it's it's a huge difference there. Well, I know that there's this merge
2: coming where they're gonna take Ethereum proof of stake. If I were to invest in one of the projects that's built on top of Ethereum, like Polygon, which is one of the leading what's called layer two Ethereum projects, is that basically gonna become obsolete once they do the merge, or Is there still gonna be additional utility that Polygon brings on top of um, the sort of revised Ethereum uh, base chain?
0: I think there will still be a lot of utility from Polygon. Um, All that proof of stake will do is, um, it will mean that the way that we achieve consensus in the Ethereum blockchain will no longer rely on that excess energy, that computationally intensive um, algorithm. Uh, but the transaction rates will still be similar, which means that the congestion problems that we're experiencing will still be there. And so, um, layer one is already full, and transactions are horrendously costly right now. So Polygon or Matic, as it used to be called, is really helping there by um, doing what you know what we call rollups, which allow allow you um, or side chains, depending on. Which you know particular algorithm you're, you're looking at, but allows you to basically stuff a bunch of transactions into an operation that occurs out of band, outside of the core blockchain, and then a proof that the entire batch of transactions was executed properly is then um, anchored to the original blockchain. So that can greatly improve the overall throughput of the network and make it more like financially reasonable to execute transactions. Um, they can cost like pennies instead of hundreds of dollars, you know. So um, so definitely projects like Polygon are going to be really important even after proof of stake is adopted. So um, I, I've looked into
2: some of the stuff that you're talking about, the liquidity pools with Polygon and, and other coins. Um, It seems like when you're going several layers deep into this crypto thing, it gets very complicated very quickly. And so I'm wondering if, you know, layer one is full and you're still going to need layer two and all these side chains. Does it get really too complicated for kind of the uh, regular people to use? And what is the solution for sort of ease of use?
0: I, I mean, I definitely agree that it's not for the Uh, faint-hearted and to, if you'll pardon the stereotype, it doesn't pass the grandma test. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like, uh, I kind of think of it like, if you remember back in the early days of the internet, back when, before Windows 95 came out, um, in order to connect to the internet, you had to install this program called Trumpet Windsock onto your Windows 3.1 machine. And you had to like, tell it how to talk to your modem and Configure your configure your baud rate. You had to set up like what your IP, what your DNS IP address was, and all these things that you had no clue what they were, but you had to plug in the right magic numbers to make it all uh, configured properly. Most of that nobody even has to worry about anymore. That's all just kind of just sort of happens when you first um, receive your router from your internet provider. You just plug it in and it starts working pretty much. So things have gotten a lot easier. Um, but that wasn't always the case. And I think we're kind of in those early days where some things will get easier. But on the other hand, um, there is this thing about blockchains which requires you to manage your own keys. And that is a really thorny problem, the problem of key custody and how to make it easy to use while still making keys safe and secure and um, preventing people from losing all their funds. I think all of us who've been in this industry for a while have had some story about having lost lots of, lots of funds. I lost $15 million worth of Bitcoins early on in my- Oh my God, Carl. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I laugh about it now. At the time it was only, you know, at the time that I identified that I had accidentally erased my wallet, it would have only cost me $2,000 to replace those coins. <laughs> but my wife said, you know, we were going to go on vacation with that, that money, you know, and I just let it set it aside. And, you know, several years later, it's now worth far more than that. But, you know, we've all had weird stories like that. And, and this is a really challenging problem that I think is, is it is a difficult, it's a difficult to get right from a user experience perspective. And some of the um, strategies we're seeing are things like, you know, relying on friends and family to help you recover your keys by having, like, each one of them be able to provide uh, one secret that, when combined, would allow you to recover. Or just things like trust, like creating an agent that is trusted to authorize transactions that don't exceed a certain value. I mean. But it's a challenging issue, and it's something that's going to take a long time to get right. So I think things will get easier, but they're still always going to be a little bit complicated. And I'm thinking kind of that this may be a generational thing, like in the same way that our kids are very comfortable with using mobile apps and all the kinds of things they do on them. Maybe managing your wallet um, from a cryptocurrency perspective will become like just part of the literacy of the digital literacy of that generation, you know?
1: So. Carl, you see cryptocurrencies as just the beginning of what blockchain can do to revolutionize the world, and that's a powerful vision. But as a cryptocurrency investor, buying Bitcoin or Ethereum doesn't necessarily help bring about any of those other changes. Are there any ways to invest in any of those other blockchain technologies yet?
0: Yeah, well, I would say that I do think that just... You know, promoting the general activity in the space is probably in an indirect way helping to inspire the future builders who are. You know, trying to build these these interesting um, interesting futures that we're talking about. There's one called um, Proof of Humanity that I think is kind of interesting. That is a universal basic income project that is trying to create a protocol by which um, individuals could verify that a person is actually a real person, prove their personhood, and then become a part of a pool that will eventually um, pay out uh, an income to all of the. The pool participants, I guess. Um, so, so this is this. These are just a few interesting projects out there. There's so many, but um, so, so I wouldn't, you know, pick any of these in particular that I've mentioned as somehow more deserving of merit. But there, you know, if you study the space, there definitely are some exciting things going on, and I'm excited for the long term. I'm curious when you're talking about some of these future applications
2: of blockchain um, and that the projects that you mentioned. Are those things built on the Ethereum ecosystem? And if so, does um, buying Ethereum kind of constitute a kind of indirect way of
0: being long on some of those other projects? I would say it does. Um, I think that, you know, more than any other cryptocurrency uh, out there right now, I feel like Ethereum is the most blue chip of them all. I'm even sort of, if I were to identify my own preferences i would say i'm heavier ethereum than bitcoin because of its greater utility there and because of how much more activity is going on in that space so i do feel like merely buying ethereum is ultimately an investment in the act the entire ecosystem and the activity that's happening there including some of these other projects that we're talking about um because they're all kind of integrating with and making sure they're compatible with that ecosystem. Awesome. Well, thank you so much,
2: Carl, for coming on with us. Love chatting with you. Okay. Well, that's our episode for today. Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like to support the Wall Street Petting Zoo podcast, please give us a like, share or comment on your favorite social media app. You can find the Wall Street Petting Zoo podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. If you liked today's podcast episode or found anything in it useful, please consider giving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps a lot, and we really appreciate your support. Please also consider following Carl Youngblood on Twitter. His handle is at cayblood. Thanks again to Carl for coming on the podcast, and thank you, dear podcast listener, for your loyalty and support.